Okay, so we are here today um, at NFX HQ in San Francisco. I'm Pete Flynn. I'm here with my partner and friend, James Courier, and we're talking about the Lyft IPO, which is going out on NASDAQ in just a few days. Right. And so, James, 2019 is a pretty exciting year for network effects. Mm. 70% of value in technology is created by companies have a network effect at their core. So this year in 2019, it's a big year for network effect IPOs. Bunch of companies starting with Lyft and Uber and then Pinterest and Slack on the B2B side, Airbnb and Postmates, maybe Robinhood this year. All of these companies have at their core network effects that determine how the companies move, how they grow, how they compete, and understanding those network effects is critical to understanding what they're gonna be in the future. And their examples are good for startup founders to understand you know, how to emulate the successes they've had, but also to understand the environment that you're gonna be operating in over the next 10 years as these companies go public. Um, and the, the network effects that they have and the reinforcement they're gonna be trying to do and where you can play around that. For people who are investing in these IPOs, you know, they're trying to get a sense of, of what the future holds for these companies. And understanding the, the engines of these businesses is gonna be critical to taking their best guess at what happens next for these companies. So this is a fascinating company and a fascinating year. Um, you know, I think uh, both of us have kind of known the company since its origins. And uh, after many, many years, they are finally going public. And I think there's a whole bunch of interesting things going on here. One is kind of obviously, you know, we're at NFX, uh, a venture fund that focuses on network effect businesses. And this is, at its core, a network effect business. It's a transportation marketplace. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's fascinating to dive into not just the evolution, but also some of the data and kind of the published data mm -hmm. um, around the company. But where they've gotten, where they've come from. And where they're going. Yeah. You know, the $20 billion question uh, for Lyft is around competition. Mm. It's fascinating, the competition. Uh, uh, with Uber, mm -hmm. um, this is a, you know, it's turned into a duopoly, mm -hmm. um, pretty much in the U.S. Right. And Given that it's not a duopoly in China, for instance. Yeah, or in other parts of the world. Yeah. The network effects yeah. um, within the business. How defensible is this? Because if it's not defensible, then it becomes um, a pretty low-margin business. What's interesting about this particular network effect that we noticed years ago is that we call it asymptoting, right? Where uh, you can get a driver to come pick you up at four minutes and that's great. But if they pick up at three minutes, that's not necessarily even that helpful because you still got to get your bag, your jacket or your umbrella, or you got to hug the friend goodbye or go to the bathroom, whatever it is. You, you might need that three minutes to do something before you get in. So um, it's really asymptotes. You, you, you could get you know 10,000 Lyft drivers and it's not going to be that much better than where they are now with a thousand. So this is like when, when you open the app and it says your car is three minutes away. Yeah. And then you say book it and it actually rise in 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, they're just playing with the sort of that three minute rule in your mind that that's the sort of threshold of, of uh, availability. Beyond that, it doesn't matter kind of if it's 10 minutes, then you're just switching to the other app. That's right. So the app has to tell you, well, that, I mean, that's, that's a very interesting detail of the product, which, which, you know, sort of shows that that's the threshold at which the service doesn't get any better. And if, if they don't do that, you might switch over to the other app, which, which gets into another interesting challenge with this business, which is what we call multi-tenanting, right? We've talked about this before where if I'm a rider and I can choose between the two apps and I can toggle between them in a second, which I can, then I can do what's called multi-tenanting. I can live in two different apps. And of course, the drivers can do the same on the other side. So, you know, by the math of it, this is a pretty 
vulnerable type of a uh, network effect compared to many of the others that we work with. So the sort of traditional analogy that's often used is telecommunication network effect. So you think of Verizon or AT&T, it's sort of like they're substitutes for each other, but there's just not that much competition. So other entrants that have tried to compete against Uber and Lyft have kind of been knocked out because they haven't achieved the sufficient scale and density in their particular markets. Right, right. So Um, Juno was, I think, the best example, right, in New York. Yeah, they come in, they raise 50 million bucks, they get all the drivers. They had no problem getting supply side of the marketplace, but they had a tough time getting the, the riders and, and they didn't have enough money with 50 million to actually buy enough traffic so that the drivers would then be, be happy enough and they ended up selling for 200 million, which was really an aqua hire uh, in that case, which was too bad um, because you, know, you could see having you know three logos on each dr- a driver. You could see uh, a Lyft and an Uber and a Juno, let's say, but it never happened because of this, what you say is this threshold network effect where... You just got to get both sides of the marketplace in order to get it down to three or four minutes. So it's interesting looking at the the S1 that, and and of course we don't know kind of Uber's number, while it's a sort of asymptoting network effect, they've continued being able to kind of increase their take um, within the marketplace. So they've increased their ability to to grow revenue per active rider. Um, And at the same time, there's this sort of, uh, you know, this aggressive focus on market share gain. So, so Uber's been, you know, the number one for several years, but Lyft is fighting back and growing their market share. It remains to be seen how long-term profitable this is going to be. Right. And because there's discounts, there's, there's price competition. Clearly, demand side is simulated by pricing. I, I think the fear is from an investor perspective, these guys are going to just battle forever, kind of forever yeah. and create basically like the airlines. What would, be the, what would be the airline analogy? Uh, prices are basically commoditized. And so if you look at um, the, the travel industry, it's like the, the OTAs make a buck or two per, per airline ticket. But in reality, they're very successful businesses because they make a ton of money on hotels. Mm-hmm. Um, hotels haven't been commoditized. So there's still margin there to be gotten. But the airlines, because they're essentially selling the exact same thing, have been able to be commoditized. And so they're really making their money off their frequent flyer points, right? They've, they've gone to loyalty programs in order to try to find some margin away from the other airlines. Yes, well, certainly Uber's launched a, um, a reward program, yeah. a loyalty program yeah. to kind of avoid this sort of um, multi-tenanting. multi-tenanting. Yeah. And certainly the kind of packaging and pricing they're putting in is to kind of get people to be loyal to one company versus the other. Yeah. And two years ago, Lyft in the United States only had 25% market share, but now they're up to 39%. Why do you think that is? There was clearly a sort of case of Uber um, being the early aggressive scale player that's coming in and kind of out-executing, frankly, Lyft, outspending and and basically taking market share. Lyft has been sort of raising capital and, and fighting back. There's sort of a public narrative that is the delete Uber, a moment which helped Lyft, yeah. which I think was a sort of a modest tailwind for them. I think it's just the company just figured out what they were doing right. and executed and raised money to kind of get to sufficient scale, made them a viable substitute to, to Uber. Yeah, and it does feel as if, you know, this is a consumer product, as we saw with Juno, they were unable to get the demand side. They were unable to get the, unable to get the consumer uh, enough on, uh, on their platform to actually make it viable. So this is really a consumer product. And 
the consumers have emotions about their products, whether it's Hertz or Ravis or Coke or Pepsi. And people have these emotions around Lyft and the Lyft brand and what it means or what it doesn't mean. And it makes a difference. I've talked to Lyft drivers and uh, they say, oh yeah, I don't do Uber anymore. And I'm like, why? And they say, well, because the Uber passengers are jerks. And I don't enjoy driving Uber passengers around. And I thought to myself, that's incredible that two companies with the exact same product, the exact same cars, because of their branding or the pink color, or the black color, or the names, or I don't know how it happened over the last eight years, but because of, of subtle differences in their branding and their approach have ended up picking different personality drivers and different personality passengers uh, so that now Lyft is at 39% market share. It's fascinating to see that slight differences can, can make that sort of impact in the long term. I think one of, the, one of the core questions going forward is how much the companies look more like each other versus different from each other. Mm. And I think you, you know, there was a time early on that Lyft was kind of the differentiated company and, and with pink moustaches and fist pumps and all the rest of it. And Uber was the sleeker, mysterious, yuppie kind of black car service. Uber's trying to lighten it up. Lyft is getting a little more solid. Yeah. Less fist pumping. I think you'll probably see the company look more, try to look more different mm. um, in the future in terms mm. of their branding. I think the, the brand differentiation will expand beyond the product differentiation. Mm. Um, and they'll try and um, uh, focus on differences between the companies and positioning to target different segments of the population. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you've seen Lyft now decide to go into the to the scooter business with their own brand. So now the Lyft brand means scooters in some places and rides, which will be an interesting difference because Uber invested uh, in one of the scooter companies and is keeping that brand separate right now, at least. Um, and so that's going to start to to shift the two uh, brand meanings to people as well. Maybe, you know, I think both of them have realized that you've got to own the app that consumers go to when they want transportation, not just when they want a ride sharing type of transportation. And I think there's a race to own that consumer habit to open up their app instead of somebody else's app. Yeah, and I think taking a long-term view, that's one of the key strategic uh, focuses for the company is to own the demand side, to be that kind of single app to own transportation. Yeah. And that obviously creates sort of a bunch of optionality into autonomous. Yeah. You know, whether it's scooters or multimodal and then autonomous. If you start to control the entry point for transportation decision making, then that opens up a whole wealth of opportunity into autonomous. It's not going to be owned by BMW or Mercedes or Tesla. It's going to be owned by a, 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 a small or square on your phone. Right. Right. Just owning those pixels on the phone might do it. And it could be car rentals, could be car leasing, could be public transportation. Yeah, you know, there's so many different modalities that people do use. It could all be in one app and it's not clear why it shouldn't be, but it hasn't happened yet. And, and we'll see if it does or not. Yeah, looking at tech companies that have gone public, one of the key things that you'd expect to see is is how much the company grows in the existing market versus grows in adjacent markets. So classic examples, Amazon moving into kind of multiple categories, multiple geographies, and then multiple industries, mm. you know, with AWS and others. And that's, mm. you know, we know that story. Mm. Facebook, obviously, with Instagram um, and WhatsApp, Google and YouTube and others. Now, on the one hand, Lyft has been taking a kind of stab at Uber for Uber Eats and um, being international. But clearly there's, there's going to be this series of S-curves for this company growing their existing markets and then what's next? 
Right. And the obvious one is autonomous. Yeah. You know, that's an enormous market, but it, it, it may be 10 years out. Yeah. And it was interesting. I was taking a tour of the Lyft uh, autonomous area down in Palo Alto the other day. They've got 450 people down there working on autonomous, people in 13 different disciplines. And you've got the same thing over at Uber, but they, instead of being in the Bay Area, are in Pittsburgh, uh, Toronto, and Ottawa, mostly. Uh, and I think they have over a 1,000 people. Both of the, the companies are spending a lot and losing 100% of what they spend on their autonomous efforts. Um, and, you know, there's probably another 10 giant autonomous efforts over Google and elsewhere uh, with the same sorts of very diversified teams and everyone just burning through cash to try to be one of the ones that gets there first. And um, it'll be interesting to see how much both of these companies start, you know, continue to invest in that, uh, you know, once they're public and these numbers start to come out and, and be scrutinized by, by uh, the investors. Yeah, and I think how much they use external investments to um, to subsidize that. Mm, because it's, right. at this point, it's almost an open checkbook, um, but it's going to be unsustainable. I don't know if it really matters. You know, in some ways, it doesn't matter. You know, for the next several years, if Lyft becomes that kind of like that button on your screen, then whether that's their own autonomous technology or third-party te autonomous technology that they integrate as part of their open platform, maybe that's okay. Maybe that's okay. But they're all doing it. They're all spending like crazy and putting huge amounts of effort in, in that direction. And given that there's, you know, 10 or 11 such efforts, I'd, I'd be interested to know what the strategy is on that. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing a lot of the discussion once the company goes public. You know, we, you mentioned Uber Eats. And, and one of the things we've seen with this asymptoting network effect, which isn't particularly strong, isn't particularly defensible, is it does feel like Lyft and Uber do need to explore other features and functionality that have better network effects. Right. So, um, for instance, uh, commute, if if your, your higher density in terms of where you get picked up in the morning can make a difference. If someone has to come six blocks over, that's an extra eight minutes if there's stoplights or stop signs. So having someone really close to you for a commute um, uh, could be very valuable. And that is not an asymptoting uh, two sided network effect. It's actually a direct network effect with with people who are commuting. And then you're going to have to drop you off somewhere. And so. Um, I think Uber is very smart to go after that, and I'm wondering if Lyft is going to get into that that area as well, simply because it is a much more defensible network effect. And this thing we're talking about right now with being the little button on the phone that would be for all of your transportation modalities, that's kind of a two-sided uh, platform network effect, right? Where you create the platform of the button and then, and then the, the public transit and the, the rental car companies and the leasing, everybody else sort of stacks on top of your platform. That, too, is a much more defensible network effect, that uh, yeah. more so than this asymptoting one that they have today. Yeah, and of, and of course, the data that's being collected out of that creates tons of improved product experiences, um, monetization opportunities, um, partnership opportunities to strengthen that, that platform. Yeah. It's unclear how it will change the competitive dynamics, dynamics, but will certainly increase the overall defensibility of those two companies because right. there seems to be this sort of copycat mentality between the two. Um, they're innovating and then replicating between the two. So um, it'll be interesting to see how the psychology of the competition plays out. Right. Because they do have to watch each other. I think the, the dynamics around the wide share of business is the demand side is clear. You know, there is ridiculous demand for low cost, high quality, high availability transportation. Um, the real question is the supply side. 
that's where the innovation opportunity and long-term margin potential is. And probably from a long-term profitability perspective, it's innovation on the supply side that is going to drive the success of these companies. And whether that is branding, whether that's product features, whether that's financing, whether that's autonomous, probably all of those areas will will be enormously beneficial to, to be successful. And there's a lot of talk about the, the demand side experience, but the supply side will probably be the defining characteristic of who wins ultimately in the U.S. in these marketplaces. Or whoever can aggregate a diverse set of supply options, either by providing it themselves, by owning the cars, or having drivers who own their own cars, or having scooters, or, you know, there's going to be so many different transportation options that they could aggregate, or whether it's a commuting network or Right. So innovation, I think, is is certainly required on the supply side, but it's also a case of enabling an ecosystem, perhaps, to develop uh, different options that can then plug into uh, a demand side aggregator. Lyft is approaching their autonomous strategy in in really two pillars. One is an open platform and one is a owned and operated and proprietary technology. And it's not clear yet. how Uber's strategy is, but it's probably going to be somewhat similar. You have to own the underlying technology for fear of disintermediation by someone else, but you have to maintain a wide number of options to work with as as many low-cost suppliers as as possible. Um, and it, you know, I think there will be. It's an interesting question, question about how the data, kind of, assert, who owns the data around these around these services, because mm-hmm. that's going to be a, a key asset in um, early autonomous companies taking a um, an advantageous lead by aggregating data and building a data network effect essentially around this mm-hmm. uh, around this um, you know new form of autonomous um, driving. You know, another thing that that people don't don't talk nearly enough about typically with with these sorts of discussions about you know two competing public companies is just the character and the culture of the different companies i mean this is something that we've experienced you know living here and knowing a lot of the executives of each of the of each of the companies and their experiences of working in the different different companies and you know i remember i don't know 15 years ago, one of the mutual funds pulled me aside and said, you know, hey, what's this, what's the competition between uh, Yahoo and Google going to be like? And I said, please, just look at their cultures. Google's going to crush Yahoo. Uh, and and that did end up happening, but it was kind of clear just by knowing the personalities and the, and the culture of these companies. You see the same thing with Lyft and Uber, very distinct cultures, um, different types of people working at the place. feels very different when you go into their offices. Uh, you know, Lyft is, you know, much more uh, collaborative, uh, much more uh, lighthearted. Um, there's there's a tremendous amount of energy and buzz there, and you have the same energy and buzz over at Uber, but it feels very different. It feels much more, um, you know, driven, uh, much more serious, much more heads down. Um, so yeah, it, it is interesting looking at the the parallels between other industries and other companies which have gone sort of public in the same sort of vintage so well pete you you had one with truly and zillow exactly right? so there's a ton of parallels so, you were so, the ceo and took truly a public and then zillow was your main competitor and the the products ended up being very similar over time how yeah. did that play out it's it's kind of analogous in the sense that truly started on uh, one segment of the market which was more home buyers and Zillow started for home sellers and then over the subsequent eight years the sort of product experience morphed the consumers really couldn't see that much differentiation in the products you know it's more the brand experiences so it moved to a marketing battle not a product battle um, and uh, and Zillow went public a year before and 
uh, Zillow went out in 2011, Truly went out in 2012. You know, both companies are great and they obviously, you know, ended up merging, but how the individual leaders think about competition, and clearly you, you've seen Uber being, um, you know, beaten to the IPO start line by Lyft, um, which is clearly in a sort of an aggressive move to, to fight back and own some of their space because they were an early innovator. Um, in, in the category. So they're getting out in front, telling their story rather than being compared to, to Uber. Um, they're telling their own story and, and getting ahead of it, which I think is a smart strategy. Box did it over Dropbox. That's the other parallel that's mm-hmm. slightly different. Mm-hmm. Similar products, different segments of the market, but Box was, was definitely the kind of less well-known company and smaller company and got out ahead. Um, and I think that was exactly the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. I think it's absolutely the smart thing to do for Lyft um, to, to get out ahead of it and tell their story and build their brand. And that, you know, for us going public, that was a key, a key component of it. To, to go public was to build our brand and, and increase awareness and obviously have a balance sheet and liquidity to, to be more active. The challenge is with going public, particularly when you've got this, this very visible comp out there, is how much the company... Um, thinks about sort of competition and, and executes in a way which is um, tracking to the metrics of the other public company versus building their own strategy. And it, and it, and it appears itself in very subtle, non-obvious ways by the metrics you choose to share with Wall Street. So you, you, you select a bunch of metrics um, and then you publish them. And once you start publishing them, it's very hard to stop publishing those metrics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that we often see in kind of... Um, in private companies where um, the execution is at a slave of the, the metrics, um, which is you know, generally a, a huge mistake to make. Um, and it's unclear longer term what Lyft's core metrics are going to be or Uber's core metrics are going to be in terms of what drives their ultimate business. So um, they're going to have to resist the temptation not to just try and optimize near-term metrics um, driven by Wall Street, which may lose sight of the longer-term goal of the business and what drives profitability. Right. And of course, Wall Street's going to want them to both report the same types of numbers so that they can compare apples to apples and make it easier. And yeah. that may not be in the best interest of either of the companies. And that's particularly hard for the number two because they're going to have inferior metrics in some ways. And then Uber being second will be able to tell a story based on what Lyft has sold. Right. Um, how they think about differentiation from a brand perspective, from a product perspective and a psychology perspective. I, you know, I, I think it's fabulous that these both these teams, well, I don't know about Uber, but certainly Lyft, the founders have a, a super majority vote. Um, it's a controversial opinion, but I think it's a great thing. As the number two player that executes strategy that's somewhat insulated from from Wall Street, it stops them being at the mercy of, um, of particular analysts and, and Wall Street dictating their strategy. They need, need to dictate their own strategy. So it's founders maintaining control. We think that's a great thing. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. You can't do anything special if you're, if you're doing it by committee. And the analysts and everybody else is the committee. So when we look at the, the you know, voting supermajority that the founders have, we see that as a very positive thing because these are industries that are changing so fast, we don't know what it's going to look like in four years. And without the ability to move these big ships fast, uh, then you're going to risk losing everything to large competitors or different technological shifts. And so these, these types of businesses, you want people to have that control. Uh, to, to navigate in, in a very rapidly changing situations. This is not General Electric. This is not IBM. 
Yeah, I, I saw it firsthand. You know, as the CEO of Trulia, we didn't have um, founder control um, uh, post IPO, whereas Zillow, Zillow did. Those founders chose to have um, founder control of, of that company, and I, you know, I obviously on the Trulia board, and then we merged. I was on the Zillow board, so along. Um, uh, Rich Barton, Lloyd Fink, and the founders who were who were in control of Zillow Group, and it, you know that was a fascinating case study of seeing two companies execute on the same uh, business problem but different strategies, and the subtle subtle thing of of having forcing that long term view, mm. which is baked into the the governance of the the company does affect the psychology and execution path. So because everyone at the boardroom knew that ultimately it was going to come down to what Rich wanted to do, there was helpful discussion, but they, they knew they weren't making the decision by committee. And therefore, you're saying Zillow could really tend to look very long term and execute toward that on a, on a monthly and quarterly basis because they had that control. I, absolutely. I think it was a superb uh, set of individuals around the table and very well-run well board, but the decision-making framework was not at the mercy of, of short-term uh, shareholder decisions, analyst decisions. It was like, what is the right thing to do for the company sure. longer term? Sure. Um, and absolutely, that was driven, you know, dr driven by the founders. And they're able to kind of reinvent and take bold bets um, through a period of time, which which is what is going to be needed for Lyft. If it, if it wants to become yep. the leader in the U.S., then it has to make some very, very bold bets. Right. Um, to try very, to move from 39% share to 59% share. Yeah, it takes some very, very, very bold bets, which probably will come at the detriment to short-term profitability, um, but that's what they're going to have to do. And so having that founder structure is going to be necessary. Yeah, so what would you tell Lyft to do at this point now that they're going public? A number of things. I think they. Um One of the things that I'm thinking is is I would I would definitely have Lyft move into uh, a commuter network. They have Lyft Line, but it's still a two sided marketplace between a driver and riders. I feel as if uh, what both Lyft and Uber should do, and, and Uber's already done it, is to try to develop a commuter network instead of being a two sided marketplace, a network among commuter drivers, commuter peer to peer, where. Uh, through higher density, you're going to be able to match up with someone who's closer to you when you leave and closer to you when you drop off. And that's going to give you incremental uh, savings in, in, in time and money uh, that will be hard to defeat. It's a real direct network effect, which would be hard to undo if you can get it. And so I, I feel as if that type of an approach is something that, that, that Lyft should be taking. I'm not quite sure why they haven't. Another thing I would suggest is to be the first to drop the autonomous unit. I just, I just feel as if someone's going to come up with it. You know, like I'm not running the company, but for me to to be spending all that money and and distraction uh, uh, to to build a technology that is going to be widely available from potentially ten other sources, and then they can compete to try to get Lyft's business. I would as Lyft focus on their advantage, which is the relationship with the consumer. Uh, and providing them with, with transportation options because the, the, the autonomous people will come to them and need that distribution at some point and, and Lyft will be a key player in that. And so I would, would be the first to, to drop that so I could focus on uh, the more network effecty type of things that Lyft is already doing. Their early days were peer-to-peer -peer when they were Zimride and they, and they had a better idea, uh, which was to create this two-sided marketplace where it was money-driven, where you could actually get people to do it because they were getting paid on these short-haul uh, rides. And I, and I think it's also worth mentioning that 
Lyft came out with Lyft instead of Zimride, and then 30 days later, uh, Uber came out with a clone of Lyft uh, with the Uber X. And it was just a brilliant move on the part of Uber to clone and copy Lyft. Uh, but I think most people think of Uber as first, even though history shows that Lyft was the first one to get there with the idea, and Uber was just smart enough to realize it was a better idea. And although the industry is now sort of 10 years old, I still think it's going to be incredibly dynamic in the next 10 years. And uh, real bold moves are going to be required, like Uber's bold move to get into UberX in 30 days and move everybody off of what they were doing onto that. Those types of bold moves can only be made when, when the founders are really in control of the company, even when the company is going to be worth $20 billion or more. Uh, so some of the other bold moves that Lyft should be focusing on is trying to think about are there, are there particular markets or segments that they can dominate in a way that they become the sort of, frankly, the monopoly, a benevolent monopoly in a particular market. So um, I think there's a perception that the battleground for these businesses is in urban America. But it's quite possible that the actual battleground is going to be in suburban America with less density, which doesn't have the economic um, size to sustain multiple competitors. And so if, if, if these companies can focus on particular markets, particular segments, particular sort of product experiences, which they can substitute being the dominant player, then that becomes a very interesting proposition and they become unable to be dislodged. And so Lyft becomes the dominant platform. Um, the, the dominant platform in thousands of smaller markets. In thousands of smaller markets. Yeah. Like, you know, everyone loves to write about what's the pickup time in Uber for, or Lyft or market share in, in San Francisco, New York, and Miami in LA. But actually, so if, so if Lyft is able to dominate these second or third tier markets, then they're, they're able to um, become the dominant player in those markets and potentially transition uh, car owners away from car ownership because you, you, know, you go on these trips and you're like, I'm going to somewhere, I'm not confident there's going to be a, a Lyft or Uber. Um, then you start to basically eliminate the, the need for car ownership, you become the dominant platform. So, so what we've got is 39% of Americans have tried this ride-sharing service uh, across the U.S., but only 19% in the rural areas. So it's really much more greenfield in those spaces. Huge opportunity in, in the rural areas. And uh, in those markets, it will likely be a winner-take-all. They're not big enough to sustain multiple competitors. Yeah, so, so right now we're excited about Lyft going public for $20, 25000000000 billion. But in a month or two, we're going to see Uber come out at maybe five or six times that. I mean, their revenues, uh, Uber's revenues are apparently, you know, over 11, while Lyft's are only two, 2.2. Um, and, you know, Uber is going to be getting a five times valuation, maybe six times valuation. They're going to be much more dominant. And then everyone's going to be talking about Uber in a month or two. Um, you know, do you think that, that Lyft can survive? I mean, is this the kind of thing where Uber is just going to keep grinding away at them? Uh, do, we, do we have hope for Lyft? Well, it's a scary proposition for Lyft. I think Lyft will be absolutely fine. I think brand preference is surprisingly strong. Um, people want to fly, you know, Virgin or used to want to fly Virgin over other airlines. And, and the same way, I think people have a strong brand preference and affinity. And I think Lyft will do just fine. But it's a it's a frightening proposition for the management having a scale player with, you know, not just billions in the bank, but tens of billions in the bank able to kind of compete and, and potentially crush them. Yeah, I think I think two years ago, I think it would have been more scared for Lyft. But having seen them move from 25 to 39 percent market share in the U.S., which is the only thing they're really focused on, that indicates that maybe they can keep moving it up. Well, they're, they're, from a cultural perspective, there seems, you know, I, I, 
are, are, at the margin, it feels like Lyft is trying to be a little bit more missionary focused culture, mm-hmm. whereas Uber is or traditionally more of a mercenary culture. Mm-hmm. This is about money. This is about being aggressive. And, you know, Dara is a terrific CEO, but it's it's a for hire CEO as opposed to founder driven. So they for sure will play up this in their external communication. It's unclear how much this is in their internal um, culture. Mm-hmm. And we know that the strength of the culture is going to be ultimately probably the single defining characteristic of long term success. Right. Particularly when we have these consumer brands. Particularly when we have these consumer brands and these are their marketplaces, their communities, like this is a way you have to appeal to ultimately millions of consumers, um, both on the supply and demand side. So if they're able to build that um, empathy with that community through their culture and build products and, right. and services and positioning against that, then you know that marginal differences there can transform to kind of dramatic network effects at scale. Right. Marginal differences in the culture, yeah. particularly as you mentioned, because you know the this particular marketplace touches real community. It touches the streets. It touches the neighborhoods. It touches people. It tens of millions of people. It touches cities. How the cities operate. I mean, it, it really touches the heart of of what makes our community a community. And and you can't ignore that. And so it it does feel as if if Lyft can harness their more community founder led culture. Uh, they could be at an advantage over a more mercenary culture, a more, you know, um, numbers-oriented culture of Uber. Mm-hmm.